So our uh, scripture lesson today comes from the book of Joshua and chapter 2. It will be on the uh, screen for you to read along with me. You are always, of course, encouraged to um, bring a Bible with you or pull out a Bible app. Um, and as I sent out this week, you're always very highly encouraged to read it a few times before you actually get here, because if you come with questions, there's at least a 50-50 chance I will answer them along the way. Joshua chapter 2, hear God's word. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then... Please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong, all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made, this oath you made a swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house. And if any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if what you tell us, but if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from this oath that you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. And when they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. This is the word of the Lord. 
So, we are talking about seemingly reckless inclusivity. I was struck in the prayer. Um, so let me start with this. Last week, Pastor Peter said that sometimes when people do a children's message, they preempt the sermon and give you all the good stuff. This time it was the pastoral prayer, all the application for how you need to live out this message. Tony kind of nailed it in his prayer, so thanks, Tony. That's good. Um, excuse me. Tony said radical inclusivity. I'm guessing he couldn't bring himself to say reckless inclusivity because we struggle with thinking that God functions in a reckless fashion. After this message, we're going to sing a song called Reckless Love, and that was the response to that song the first few times it was sung in many places. Is God really reckless with his love? So I'm okay with you using the seemingly word in front of it, It seems like God is reckless in his inclusivity. Maybe he's not reckless, but what he is is way more reckless than we are, way more radical than we are, way more inclusive than we are. And so however you want to name this, um, it is really about God's inclusivity that tends to go far beyond our natural responses. So we were going to put um, a float in the parade that had reckless inclusivity on the side of it. But by the time we talked that through, it sounded like we would have to do so much explaining that it would be better to say there's a place for you at Mountain View because that's actually what it also means. Um, and let me, one more thing on that. I'm not say, saying it's, we should be seemingly inclusive, right? Seemingly only goes with the reckless part. Inclusive is an absolute. That's exactly who we need to be. So this whole... Um, series is going to be based on, oh, you're looking over there. Look over there. That's, that helps. <laughs> it's going to be based on, on Matthew 1, the genealogy um, of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but if I was going to, if I was asked, can you tell me the story of Jesus, I would not put people to sleep by giving them 42 names in a row. This person was the father of this person, 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 was the father of this person. Are you still with me? Why does Matthew start with a genealogy? If you grew up in the church, you're going, because Matthew started with a genealogy. There's lots of them in the Bible. We just read them really quickly or skip them in our devotions, right? But when you read Matthew's genealogy, if you know something about genealogies, you're going to be really struck by a couple of things. One, it's incredibly orderly. It says right at the end, there was 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 more till the exile, and then 14 more until Jesus. You know, he actually skipped some names to make it so orderly. And that's not actually a problem. A Jewish genealogy is absolutely fine with skipping names. They're actually more important to them is, what's the message we're trying to give? And the message in any Jewish kind of writing, and Matthew was a Jew, is look for what strikes you. Look for what stands out. Look for what doesn't seem to make sense, right? So let's start with the question, why do you write a a genealogy? You write it so that you know your pedigree. You know where you came from. You know your roots. You know who your great-grandfather was. You know if, if you had royalty in your line, When you tell your stories, any of us, you also tend to skip over the rougher parts, right? When I visit you folks and I ask you questions about your life, you usually don't start with the roughest thing that happened in your life. You tell me, you know, what's going well right now, who you are. But Matthew, in telling this story, names 
Rahab, who we're going to talk about today. He names Ruth, who was a foreigner, and he names, no, he doesn't. He just says Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, she who shall not be named in this genealogy, right? So what we need to pay attention to here is that Matthew is intentionally including mothers, right? And he doesn't include all the mothers. He only includes the mothers who have a story. It may be a story that we wouldn't want to necessarily lead in with. He's probably trying to make a very particular point. And you probably now know why we're doing a series on reckless inclusivity. Jesus' line, Jesus' lineage seems to have intentionally included a whole bunch of people who we might want to keep on the down low, right? And so we're going to look at that and lean into that. Um, Then one more thing on that, because probably somewhere in the new year or the year after that, I'm going to preach a whole bunch on Matthew because I'm really excited about what I'm learning about Matthew. Yes, you guessed it from my Bema podcast that I'm listening to. Highly recommend it. Um, Matthew was a tax collector. And as a tax collector, he was either a Rahab, a Ruth, or a she who had been Uriah's wife, right? He was an outsider. He was somebody who you didn't want to mention, and yet he got to sit around the table with Jesus at the Last Supper, be his disciples, and write the first gospel, at least in the order of the Bible, that we have received it. He knew all about what it was like to be someone who needed to be recklessly included in the line of Jesus. Spy retry. If you know the story leading up to Joshua, Joshua is the first book after the five that Moses wrote that talk all about the Exodus and the time in the desert. You also know that there's a previous spy adventure, right? Moses sent out 12 spies. 10 came back saying, they're going to kill us, they're huge. That's not exactly a quote. And the other two came back and said, we should trust the Lord, right? So Joshua, having learned from that, Joshua was one of those two spies who said, we should trust the Lord. Joshua, learning from that, said, never mind, if we don't send all 12, the 10 who are going to get it wrong won't be there, just the two who will get it right. And so he only sent out two spies. That may not be his reasoning, but he only did send two spies. And can anyone tell me the name of these two spies? The two in the previous time were Joshua and Caleb. Does anyone know the name of these two spies? No? That's good, because they're not named. We don't have any idea who they are. All right? And that's important, because we do know this woman's name, Rahab. So if you're telling the story of Israel and God conquering Jericho, and you're sending in two of your spies who are going to come back and give glorious news that these people are melting in fear because of us, you would think you would probably know their names and not the name of the prostitute who welcomed them. That might be the part of the story that you said, yeah, and they... Because you've got to ask yourself, why do they go to a prostitute's house, right? We've tried to clean this up. There's a footnote in many Bibles that says she was an innkeeper. She was definitely not an innkeeper, right? That's trying to clean up the story. She had a job that we're uncomfortable talking about, and so I'm going to keep that really low because this is a G-rated experience that you're having here. By the way, there are four women listed in this genealogy. We only have three Sundays to do it on because next week is the dramatic presentation. So I took out Tamar. Read the story of Tamar, if you're over 18, and you'll now know why we're not doing Tamar, all right? 
There should be a time, by the way, when we gather as adults and talk about the more R-rated stories in the Bible, because they're in the Bible for a reason, and they are important, but in our levels of sensitivity, we can't actually talk about them openly because then parents have to go home and make way too many explanations, so you're welcome. You don't have to do that, hopefully, today. They went to Rahab's house, the named person. Then I call this naive incompetence, at least with a question mark. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house. So these two spies, being sent by Joshua, who was the great spy of the Moses era, knew probably something about spying, first thing they do is they go to Rahab's house and they get caught, really. They were busted. They were seen, right? I don't know about you, I know very little about spying in any generation or era, but I think the idea is to be kind of under the radar and sneaking in and not being seen so that you can make a report safely. All these two managed to do is go as far as the wall, because she lived in the wall, and get caught. I think there's some naive incompetence there, but that's part of the story, because you're going to notice God doesn't mind if we're naively incompetent at times. Rahab, however, has a moral dilemma. But the woman who had taken the two men and hidden them, sorry, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, she said, yes, the men came to me, and then she tells a lie, right? And it's always important that we pause and pay attention to what happens in stories. Many stories in the Bible, by the way, are not try to be like the character in the Bible story, right? The history of the Bible is to tell how God works through all kinds of circumstances. Sometimes, for good reason, he works also through lies because Rahab told a lie. And I want to suggest to you, so we've, we often say this line, we say, all sins are equal. Yeah, you got to interpret that a little bit. It's true that every sin makes you a sinner, every sin makes you guilty, but there's different consequences for different sins. I would much rather you, I would much rather that I would tell a lie that saves somebody's life than to be a very truthful person who, because of my truthfulness, has all kinds of people's lives destroyed. Pretty simple, right? We've seen this in history. We saw it with the hiding of the Jews during the the Nazi era, right? There are times when you need to make a moral decision and say, what's the best thing I can possibly do in this moment? What will help God's kingdom proceed? That's the bottom line question in there. So when I'm reading Old Testament stories, when you're reading Old Testament stories, When you get to those parts in the story where you go, yeah, I've seen that before, why don't they just say it once? Why don't they just say, I know that the Lord is God because we are melting in fear because we heard about what your God has done. End of story. Instead, they say, I know that the Lord is God because our people are melting in fear. We've heard what happened. We heard that the Lord did, and they name a few examples. And when we heard that, which they already said, we melted in fear, which they already said, and we know that the Lord your God is God, which they already said. It's because the writer of Joshua wants you to pay attention to this. He made it a chiasm. I've said that word before. It means X. It means look at the center, basically. I'm not going to explain all that again. It's not that important that you know that. It's important that you know that Rahab's testimony is based on what God has been doing. She knows the Lord is God. That's the first thing she says and the last thing she says. Because right there in the center where I just wrote the Lord, she's heard about what God has done. She's seen that this God really is God because he's actually making things happen that 
nobody would expect. He's doing miraculous deliverance, healing, those kinds of things in this world. I must admit, Matt Maria is a little disappointed that your testimony today was not a chiasm, but okay, we're going to have to let it go. This chiastic, this extra-structured um, testimony points out the fact that the reason the spies aren't named is because they're completely irrelevant. God did all these things. They go back and, and they actually report to Joshua at the end. We'll see that. These people are melting in fear because of us. Now, you know they're melting in fear because of God. And it's okay to say us because we say that, right? We are God's body. We are his people. The world is seeing God's kingdom come through us in spite of the fact that like these spies, we're sometimes naively, naively incompetent. Nonetheless, God is at work um, through all of us. Beyond be nice, and that's pronounced chesed. Let me read the passage and I'll explain. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, says Rahab, because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign. And she carries on. So Rahab basically says, we might read, be nice to me, I was nice to you. And you're hearing in there, yeah, that's fair, right? This is a good deal. But she's using a word there, that's why I wrote H-E-S-E-D, that's chesed, which is faithfulness, which is actually the word that they use in the Old Testament all the time for God's incredible, long-suffering faithfulness for his people. So she's not saying be nice. She's saying be like your God. Lean into the kind of faithful, trustworthiness, ongoing presence that your God has out of that truth that I now believe in because I've seen what your God can do. Out of that truth, make this deal with me. Give me a sign that I will be set free. She's calling, again, that's why Rahab is named, not the spies. She's calling for the truth of how God lives. And then there's always three. If you have Bible Gateway, and you should have Bible Gateway on your computer, write three in the search, press enter, see how many times this comes up. And how many times is about three days? How many things happen in three days? And you know the big one, right? I'm just going to skip all the background story and get to the big one. It, Jesus was in the grave for three days. And on the third day, he rose again. And that's actually more important than just it's a really common pattern in the Bible. Um, in Old Testament times, when they buried somebody, they would actually open the tomb, because it was, it was a, a cave with a stone in front of it. They'd open the tomb the first day and, and yell in, if it was Grandma, hey, Grandma. And if she didn't answer, they'd know she was still dead. And on the second day, they didn't have doctors to write a death certificate, so they actually checked for a couple of days. On the third day, if you were dead, you were definitely dead. Thus, the third day. Right? And that pattern goes throughout, throughout the Bible. So these guys get sent, hide yourselves for three days. And it has some logic to it. If it wasn't in the Bible over and over and over again, I probably wouldn't notice it. I probably wouldn't talk about it. Right? But because it's that pattern, the fact that they were told to hide three days, not two days, not four days, you're recognizing that they are dying. They're acting like they're dead. And when they're surely dead after three days, they're going to rise again, they're going to come out of hiding, and they're going to go on their way. This story of Rahab is a story of death and resurrection, of those who got caught for their incompetence being raised up and resurrected and able to bring the good news that God is in the land, that God is going to conquer back to their people. This is a Jesus story in the end. And then a red entryway. See if this sounds familiar to you from some other story prior to it in the Bible. 
unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And they said, and make sure all of your family is there. They didn't tell him to kill a lamb without any blemishes, right? But they said, make sure you have red on your window and your family with you. And then when the destruction comes, it won't affect you. It's the Passover all over again, right? At the Passover, God said, I'm going to go through the land and I'm going to um, take the firstborn of every family unless there's the red blood around the doorposts. And here it's unless there's a scarlet cord in your window, you will be, if, if that is there, you will be passed over and you will not be destroyed. You'll be set free. And so again, God's consistent pattern of saying, because you trust me, I'm going to ask you to do something, to stand up and and take an action that shows your faith. And in this case, it's to Rahab, hang that scarlet cord in your window. If you have enough faith to believe that that's actually going to save you, and you know how Jericho went down, right? They marched around it, and then the walls all came down. She was living in the wall, but just that piece of the wall stayed standing. Do you think that took a little bit of faith to say, yeah, that little hanky that I'm hanging up my window, that's going to keep my part of the wall from falling down. Probably the bigger piece of faith was the wall's actually going to fall down. But if the wall is going to fall down, if you actually believe that, to think that your hanky's going to save you, right? So today we did this. We put a little bit of water and said some words with a name, not being, meaning to be facetious or downplay this, but practically speaking, that's all I did, right? But we believe that this little act, this little act of faith, this little act of faith that we did together as a community has changed the life and the trajectory of young Elise because we believe that when we act in faith and trust God, it changes how things happen in our world. And through all this, God moved. Always the bottom line, God moved. So they, these unnamed spies, said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. And who are they quoting here? All the people are melting in fear because of us. They're quoting Rahab. Rahab, that great person of faith, right? Um, Rahab is a famous prostitute. We... Generally, I think if you would ever see a painting of Rahab, I don't know if the medieval painters did a painting of Rahab, but they would put a halo around her and she would have some slight sign that perhaps she had been a prostitute. We don't actually live into the depth of what that actually meant. We wash this whole story clean and forget about its painfulness, right? When we know people who've come from a past, when we've walked with people and experienced with them the strenuousness of their broken life. Maybe then we remember a little longer what kind of pain they had to live through, but I always think without being way too explicit, how do we own how crazy it seems to us that God names Rahab and includes her and doesn't just say, hey, you can have a small piece in the, in the game. You're going to be one of the great-grandmothers of Jesus, of David first and of Jesus you're going to be central. You're going to be in the Hall of Fame because that's what Hebrews 11 is. Right? Of all the people in the Bible you could name, Hebrews 11, the Hall of Fame of those who had faith, says, by faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And the next book is James. 
And in James, it talks about action because faith is one side, action is the second side, they go together. In James, it says, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? The Bible wants to raise up Rahab, this outsider, this person of ill repute, which is a term we have used along the way for such people, right? This person who we would try to avoid and walk by, and we're not sure what to do with if we hung around um, them. That's who Jesus includes in centers. And somehow we have to figure out, how do we become like God and Jesus in this kind of inclusivity? How do we enter into those kinds of stories? Pastor Peter already mentioned the um, blanket exercise that we did yesterday. And in that exercise, because we were actually led by indigenous people, because I had done this before when it wasn't led by indigenous people, because we were led by actually indigenous people, we lived into their story and felt from them because they would edit every once in a while and say, and by the way, I experienced that personally. And then you go, oh, that's, that's a lot closer to home. And that suggests to me that the beginning of inclusivity is actually always getting out there and finding the people we want to include, right? Because if you look around and notice how not particularly diverse we are, say it nicely, um, people who are not already in the same frame of mind and all kinds of other things as we are are not going to automatically just walk in here, right? Um, I have on occasion gone to places where we were worshiping God, but everybody looked completely differently from me. I went there because I was invited and I had a role to play. I don't know that I've ever gone and said, yeah, I'm going to go hang around with people who are not at all like me. It requires an invitation. It requires an embrace. It requires God moving sort of like he did in Rahab's world where he says, here's an opportunity, guys. You need this person to help you. You need this person to help you. And then recognize God was at work long before the spies got there. They needed her because God had planted her there. God has planted some really strange person in your life that you need to walk into, find, listen to their story, and know God is going to help you through Rahab in this world. Think about that. And that sound means that the sermon's done. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you're inclusive because that means you included us. Help us to own that. And sit in that. Help us to read our story, your Bible, and recognize that our story includes Rahab. And our story includes Rahab because you moved, you acted. And so we pray that we would also act in faith, that maybe our scarlet cord is stepping into the life of somebody who is struggling, whose life is messy, who wouldn't be someone we would naturally go and invite into a conversation. But may we be like you. And may we be like you, recognizing not our competence, but yours, your power, that you're at work, that you've gone ahead. Help us trust you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.